Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, Master Cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Hi, and welcome to Extra Serving, a Nation's Restaurant News podcast. I am your host, Holly Petri. Today, we're going to be talking about the latest trends in restaurants. A few years ago, we were talking about Sweetgreen and Wingstop, both brands that viewed themselves as tech companies first and restaurant companies second. Now, there's a new trend across restaurants where there are more marketing companies that sell food than restaurants with a good marketing team. Chipotle's, McDonald's, and Taco Bell have all been named by Rolling Stone as some of the top 20 marketers across the country throughout all industries. So what earned them this title and how are restaurants acting like marketing companies? We have the expert Alicia Kelso on today to talk about that. Also, Toast, which unveiled an extremely controversial fee earlier this year, has walked back on the policy. The fee was 99 cents on any orders of $10 or more, and the fee went straight to the customer rather than the restaurant. Restaurants had no choice of taking the fee off themselves and thought it would deter customers from buying from them. The fee has now been removed from Toast System. What does it mean that the company is listening to its customers and what does it hold for the future of the tech company? This week's interview is Brian Sullivan, VP of Culinary for Red Robin Gourmet Burgers and Bruce. And now it's time to introduce my lovely co-hosts. I'm Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief of Nation's Restaurant News. I'm Leanne Zinsmeister, Managing Editor, Nation's Restaurant News. And I am Alicia Kelso, Executive Editor of Nation's Restaurant News. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, Master Cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Welcome to the podcast, Alicia. Thanks for having me, Holly. Marketing expert. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she Holly is. says. She used Loosely. to work in social media. She's a marketing expert. She's much defined. more so than us. That's for sure. <laughs> but I mean, she's really, she wrote the article on it, basically. That's all it takes. Actually, That's all it takes. Not basically. She actually literally wrote the article. She literally. It's like a dissertation. <laughs> It was very good, Alicia, and I felt very <laughs> informed after reading it. And I was like, huh. But that Rolling Stone thing is really interesting. We can kind of roll right into that because I thought that was a really interesting element that these three brands, Chipotle, Taco Bell, and McDonald's, had their marketing executives named to this Rolling Stone list of like top marketers. Um, they were the only three restaurant brands, but it was only 20 people. So I think that three restaurant brands is a pretty good uh, sign. And I think we can all agree that those three companies our head and shoulders above the rest of the industry that, you know, it makes sense. This list made sense to us. We've been talking about McDonald's marketing for forever. Um, they have that big marketing war chest. We've talked about Taco Bell's marketing and Chipotle's marketing. They're all run by marketers. So I think that it's really interesting to talk about this at, at in depth, the fact that restaurants now are serving more as marketing companies where that's kind of their shtick rather than the food. So. I don't know. I think that's fascinating. I would, I would say parallel to the food. I want to be cautious about that. <laughs> I certainly don't think that Chipotle is, you know, not a food company or Taco Bell or McDonald's, but you know, I get what you're saying here. And that was kind of the premise of the article. And I, um, you know, obviously I gravitate toward this, this, um, uh, 
this topic because I did spend seven years in a marketing department and I learned a tremendous amount doing so, including the launch of a new brand campaign and all the workings that went behind it. The three companies that were identified by Rolling Stone obviously were not a surprise because they have been creating some really interesting, I would say, industry and other industry leading campaigns. Um, we will be talking about some of the things that they've been doing uh, much more in the near in the near term because other other players are going to pull directly from the playbook here. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, the the smartness of these campaigns where, you know, take McDonald's for an ex, as an example, they didn't add any skews to some of these campaigns. Um, you know, the Grimace Shake included one new flavoring that was added to their otherwise traditional shake. Um, you know, their Travis Scott uh, cactus plant, uh, those collaborations, they didn't, they didn't include any new SKUs. So they're doing this marketing, um, these marketing campaigns without adding a significant amount of operational complexity. And it reminds me of when I first started covering this industry about 10, 12 years ago, that was not the case. A lot of companies would just add layers and layers and layers of SKUs to push out buzzy new campaigns and buzzy new headlines. And, and you know, and I think it kind of, it, it, there's a confluence of things happening here. And, and first among them, chief among them is how we've just become smarter operators as an industry um, since the pandemic. Um, that said, these three companies have giant marketing budgets. Um and of course, they're going to be recognized for their efforts because they have the ability to do things and get top of mind, you know, in a way that other companies just simply can't. Um, but again, I think that the way that they're tapping, especially the way they're tapping into their consumers to help curate their brands, um, you know, for example, Chipotle with the, you know, taking TikTok influencers and adding those wildly popular creations to the permanent menu. Um, Taco Bell telling its fans, please vote for our, our new sauce sayings. The, the fan curation, I think is, I think can be duplicated, you know, in a, in a, in a pretty cost effective way for smaller and emerging brands to, to do. Do, do. Do you need to tap into influencers? Maybe, you know, I went to a restaurant opening in Louisville a couple of weeks ago and there were like, you know, probably 20% of us were media and the rest were influencers. And I was like, that's really smart. You know, that they were local influencers, but they're tapping into, you know, these sort of the, the people who are more directly aligned with, with the, with the customers. So I think, again, I think this is going to be, I think we're early days here of this sort of fan curation, customer curation. I think it's necessary to think about how to inject your brand in a way that includes that sort of collaborative effort from customers, from, you know, that tapping into the creator economy, if you will. Um, Josh Halpern, who's the CEO of Big Chicken, talked at length about this during the Texas Restaurant Association show last week when he was doing a fireside chat. He predicted it five years from now, we'll be doing much more uh, by way of fan curation of our brands. That's what these younger consumers especially expect. Um, and so I think it's time to start thinking about how we do that. Yeah, I, I think all of that, um, this is why you're the marketing expert, Alicia. Thank you for joining and imparting that wisdom because all that was right on. And I, and I think, you know, to go back to the McDonald's example, 
um, the Grimace Shake, so much of the success of the Grimace Shake uh, was out of McDonald's hands because it was uh, became a viral thing on TikTok where they, there was this whole thing of people dying after drinking the Grimace Shake. Um, that's my old man way of summarizing what all that was. Um, <laughs> and but what's amazing is that, you know, McDonald's, of course, they they did not, as far as I can tell, um, construct that in any way. Right. Like they just let that happen. And in many ways, um, sort of shepherded that. Right. Like they they did not stand in the way of people taking that Grimace Shake trend and running with it, even though some brands could have looked at that and been like, oh, this is negative to us because it's because it's them dying and it's tied to our brand. McDonald's understood this is not about us. This is about something else. And that became very massively successful. And so, you know, to your point, Alicia, and, and about what Josh was saying at Big Chicken, um, you know, what these brands have successfully understood is that it's it's about tapping into the zeitgeist. It's about tapping into the national conversation that nobody controls, right? The The people ultimately control this thing. And if you put the right places in, if you play chess here and, and maneuver the right places in pieces in place, um, they will sort of get swept up by that zeitgeist. Um, and that's it's hard to manipulate and control. But if you do it right and you just sort of ride the wave, I think it can be very successful. And, you know, if you look at Big Chicken as an example, they have a really impressive chess piece in Shaquille O'Neal. That man is a part of the zeitgeist. Uh, he's been a part of my life for most of my life. I had a poster of the guy on my wall when I was a kid, you know? So it's like he is, he means something versus a chicken brand that starts from scratch and has nothing like that. McDonald's has been around for eons and all of us grew up on it. Um, Chipotle, it's a little bit different because it's a newer brand, but they, I think they really understand what they have. And so likewise are sort of shepherding um, the customers around this, uh, less irreverent than Taco Bell, more around quality, but but still there there is a conversation in the zeitgeist about Chipotle and Chipotle is letting it happen. They're a really interesting case study because I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but Steve Ells and the old regime used to try to be like, no, no, that's not who we are. No, 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 we're about this. And I think what Brian Nickel understands is it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's about what the customer wants of us. So, so that's the, for me, that's sort of the takeaway here of how do you, how do you control this? How do you participate in this? It's to understand where the national conversation is going and don't get in your own way. Just let it be and put the chess pieces in the right place. And I think it will take on a life of its own. The point about Brian Nickel is interesting too, because he obviously was steering the ship at Taco Bell for so long and then moved over to Chipotle. And now both of those companies are being, um, recognized for their marketing. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and meanwhile, at Taco Bell, we had, you know, another marketing guy who's been running the company for the last four years. And then another marketing guy is stepping into his shoes next year. So Taco Bell knows they're good at marketing and they are not afraid to lean into it. And that's great. Um, it's so interesting here because we have pieces like the um, Grimace Shake, like Sam was talking about, that really you can't you can't start something like that. That's something that like your audience, the audience took the Grimace Shake and made its own like audience driven marketing campaign. And then you have things where the, some of these things are so easily replicated uh, from brand to brand. I mean, we were just talking this morning. I said, hey team, like I can think of three brands off the top of my head that have started working with musicians in the last week. Like who else is out there? And we came up with seven or eight 
off the top of our heads. And like working with celebrities isn't new, but it's certainly trendy right now. And it's something that even independent restaurants, you know, every town has local celebrities, whether they're, you know, actual musicians, actors, comedians, or just like the local influencer or, you know, the guy everyone just knows. I mean, sometimes it's like the mayor is the local celebrity. And it's so easy to get people to where you don't need a marketing budget. Like, you know, you don't need to be McDonald's working with Michael Jordan in the early 90s. Like, you can find your own version of that and put it to use. And once you do, maybe some of those audience-driven marketing campaigns will start themselves. Well, to that point, you know, the Michael Jordan and the McDonald's comparison, Michael Jordan was in McDonald's commercials, period, right? Like, that was that was the extent of what a lot of the celebrity work was. Um, to use a more modern-day example, Raising Cane's and Post Malone, Post Malone owns a Raising Cane's in Utah. His face is splashed across their marketing. He's coming up with menu items. And again, with a McDonald's example, they're bringing in celebrities to partner on, you know, those meals where it's it's not just stick your um, celebrity in a commercial and call it a day. Because like you guys probably, I don't watch many commercials anymore, but as I'm fast to skip over those, right? Um, but of course I do look at social media. And so when the celebrity has more ownership in the thing, in the campaign, um, there, there is a brand extension across many channels, including social media and especially social media that, uh, that it becomes a lot more of a partnership, I guess, with that celebrity. And so it's not about their, their, you know, likeness, their face, it's about their essence, their fan base, their network and connections, what they represent and that it goes so much further than just a commercial will do. And I think I, it's interesting. Sorry, no, Alicia, you go ahead. I, 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 I insist on you going, but I do have a... <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was just going to say, I think it's an interesting point to think about the fact that these companies are all so cognizant of social media and the trends that are happening in social media. Like we look at Chipotle as a great example. They saw that their burritos, they saw the burrito hack on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And they made a move and they took down a way to make that hack, but they saw the quesadilla and they made that a part of their menu. So they're cognizant of what's happening. Taco Bell is the same way, but the Mexican pizza, it blew up and they helped it blow up with the way that they marketed it around it. They built a whole campaign. They have millions and millions of TikTok views on their own stuff. They built a musical around it. And you think about the way that they're just paying attention to the zeitgeist. Like they're they're not just letting it slip by. They're actively participating and looking at what's happening. Yeah, I, that's a great point. And there's a couple things here. One, the definition of celebrity has very quickly changed. Um, so to Sam's point where McDonald's used to use Michael Jordan just to be a spokesperson in a commercial, you know, now there's applicability across multiple channels and multiple different, you know, multiple types of celebrities. Um you know, and I, look at how the, the TikTok thing is a good example. I'm too old to know who these people are. I, you know, I'm just simply too old Same. to know who TikTok influencers are. But that was a wildly successful campaign, so much so that they made it, you know, permanent. You know, but then you take somebody who I'm not too old to know, and that's LeBron James and Taco Bell. They didn't use him as a spokesperson in the Taco Tuesday tussle. They used him just to come to their defense about why they were doing it and just say, look, we all need Taco Tuesday. And I don't know if his, you know, leveraging him worked, but something in there worked. 
Um, so again, that whole definition, that whole idea of celebrity has, has changed to the point where, you know, my kid is an ad- advocate of Mr. Beast. We all know that by now. And, you know, all the way from, from that to the TikTok folks, to, to LeBron and everyone in, in between and, and just leveraging all of it and, and all of them in so many different ways. Um, I do want to make mention quick because Holly, Holly touched on this about the succession plan at Taco Bell and how intentional it seems that they are, you know, they're tapping their leaders based on their marketing and branding prowess, right? Um, the incoming CEO, uh, Sean Tresvent, comes from Nike. And, uh, you know, during a, a presentation at the National Restaurant Association show in May, um, I learned that Nike is by far the most favorite brand identified by Gen Z consumers. And that is because it is a lifestyle brand. That is what they like about Nike, that it's a, they don't buy Nike every day. They might buy Taco Bell every day or every other day, or at least every week. They're not going to be spending that much money on shoes that frequently. So the fact that this is a non-frequent brand that they identify as their favorite brand, again, I think it goes back to that intentionality and it's a lifestyle and the authenticity of it. And I, you know, if there's no connection there, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that there's not. Um, I, final point I want to bring up per Leanne's uh, point, when we talked about the musicians that, that brands are, are um, collaborating with, Holly thinks that Paris Hilton is a legitimate singer. <laughs> she is. That did come up this morning, and I was surprised. Holly, are you old enough to remember a Paris Hilton singing career? So I can't legally sing the song on this podcast, um, but I would if I could. We just had to spend a lot of money for you to do it, and um, thank God that we're not going to do that. Uh, yeah, that's um, oof, ouch. Um, well, anyway, at one point I was going to make though. Um, the uh, two points and to to piggyback off Alicia really quick, which is you know Sean comes from Nike, but not just Nike. He comes from the Jordan brand, and even more so the Air Jordan brand. Even more so than Nike is that lifestyle. I mean, these are hundred fifty two hundred dollar pairs of shoes, and people collect them. And you know, saying you have Jordans or wearing Jordans. I mean, that is that is it's deeply meaningful to those who um, purchase those shoes and collect those shoes in ways that even having just a Nike, um, you know, pair of shoes is not. So yes, Sean deeply, deeply understands that. Um, And the last point I'll say too is um, I had an opportunity uh, last year to get into the Chipotle social media war room uh, because that's here in Columbus that their second headquarters. And um, you know, it's fascinating because there, there was an army of 20 somethings in that room and there were screens all over the wall of real-time social media posts. And they are, of course, watching it like a hawk because they have to. And I think that is the difference between these major chains like Chipotle and Taco Bell and McDonald's compared with uh, even a big chicken or other emerging brands or, or whatever is resources, right? Like if you have one social media person following stuff on their phone, that's one thing. And that's, you know, okay, you can tweet once in a while. But if you really want to be serious about participating in the zeitgeist, you should consider having a social media war room armed with a bunch of 20-somethings because it's a big conversation and and it is not something to take lightly. 
Um, so as you grow, I would say put money into your marketing department and hire a bunch of 20 somethings to be following that stuff. <laughs> That's almost not me anymore. It's so scary. That's when Holly gets laid off. <laughs> <laughs> the day I turn 30, I get laid off. Bye. <laughs> Well, so Alicia brought up lifestyle brands, which I think is really interesting because Taco Bell is probably the prime example of a lifestyle brand. They've had merchandise. They've had, they invite fans to vote. They have a great loyalty program where people get food first. I mean, like when Taco Bell creates clothing, it sells out immediately, like immediately. And I think that that's a really interesting, I mean, when you think of lifestyle brands, I know Sweetgreen, which I mentioned earlier, which viewed itself as a tech company though. They've backed away from that. Uh, go listen to Sam's episode of Takeaway with Nathaniel Rue if you want to hear more about that. Um, but <laughs> nice plug, I know. Um, but you know, the Sweet Green is also a lifestyle brand. I know they're not in Columbus, and they're—I don't know if they're in Louisville. But um, for those of us who have them, it's become a lifestyle brand. They have their loyalty program where they're selling merchandise now. They are trying to curate this lifestyle brand in a way that Taco Bell has really done successfully. And when you are involved in a brand holy like when you have clothes when you have merchant other merchandise when you have when you get to vote on sauce packet names like that's a holistic experience with a brand and it makes you much more involved in there and it makes you want them to succeed you become a billboard for their brand right like sweet green the best example of them because this is relevant to me because i have one of these is the tote they've got tote bags right and i i have a sweet green tote bag and I don't have a sweet green in my neighborhood. And yet I still, you know, we would take that to the farmer's market, right? Because it's a practical, useful tote. Um, so yeah, you're, you're a billboard for the brand. Um, that is that is the essence of becoming a lifestyle brand. But that also indicates from my vantage point, Taco Bell has had a merch line for a long time. I would say 20, 20 to 25% of the pitches I get in my inbox are new merch lines from brands. And I mean, we're talking every regional brands like, you know, Torchy's Tacos. Merch is the thing now. It is by it's past being a trend. It's just sort of becoming, again, more of an expectation. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not just merch lines that support these brands. They're they're changing them up. Seasonality, you know, I mean, Chick-fil-A just switched to its sauce merch and now it's going to switch to another kind of merch line. And so when you talk about the lifestyle brands, yes, every single restaurant brand with a marketing budget is de is really trying to sprint toward that idea of, of getting these customers to be those so-called walking billboards. Um, and complementing that with those exclusive opportunities in the in the app because they are all also adding or iterating their loyalty program. So I think the 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 two of those things together is creating a new sort of world for for restaurant marketing that we're sort of that we're sort of talking about right now. And there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we've got we've bounced around on the term of marketing because it's so big. I think that's some of the reason why it's become so ubiquitous among some of these restaurant brands is because marketing is huge. It now encompasses threads, which some which some companies are using really well. It encompasses Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Like there's just the platforms multiply. And when you think about that, you have to have a presence on all of these, you need a big team to do it. Yeah. Video games is another um, you know, really relevant trend that's been manifesting, I think, for well before the pandemic. But we all know, 
you know, usage, video game usage exploded during the pandemic because everybody was home. Um, and now it's expanding beyond demographics, like, you know, older demographics um, are, are using video games more than they've ever done. You know, I know my son is a video, he's a video gamer. Um, so you are able to tap into a huge, um, you know, swath of demographics by injecting yourself into that into that arena as, as well. It, it's not it's not a job for the for the um, you know faint of heart. It's certainly not you know especially with how fast it moves. It was one of my big challenges at my last job, Sam. You mentioned social media listening. I would argue that was the most important part of my job in that marketing and social media department. Was okay. How can we pounce on? you know, what the conversation is, what are our fans talking about? What are, what do pe people want from us and really leveraging everything that we could, whether it was just a small conversation or something. So I, you know, I, I think that it's a challenge, it's a challenge, but I also think it's impossible to keep up with in some circumstances. And that's maybe another reason why companies are, are relying a little bit more on, on, um, you know, their consumers to, to help, uh, produce some of this content, this co-collaboration, if you will. And to our listeners, if you'd like to collaborate with us, please reach out to any of us. We'd love to collaborate with you. <laughs> I thought you were going to say go follow us on social media or something, but yeah, that, that works too. You can also follow us on social media, but I think it's nice to collaborate with restaurant folks. We'd love to get tours of your restaurants. We'd love to come and visit. So hit us up. We're here. So now let's move on to toast. Wah, wah. <laughs> kind of like a listen. <laughs> so they introduced that really controversial 99 cent fee a few weeks ago. That was basically a fee that customers had to pay that restaurants could not take on themselves. Uh, and that was a really interesting thing that restaurants disliked was that <laughs> obviously. It's a really fun way to put it. That's a, that was an interesting thing that restaurants disliked. <laughs> I mean, because they didn't, they were like, they'll take on the fee. It's fine. But the customers seeing an additional fee is, is a lot for a lot of customers. You just, the service charges add up when you order online and people already know it's bloated when you order online. So it's become an industry to add more prices on. And so now Toast has removed that fee. It was 99 cents over $10. Um, and so they've completely removed that fee. And I mean, I think it's a good thing. I think restaurants are pretty happy about it. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. I, if I may, I, I, I still can't see Sam on camera, so I have no idea when he's about to speak for anything. I've been making faces at you this whole time. <laughs> oh, I assume that. Um, I just like don't have any cues when you have something to say, so I would just start talking. Um, Go for it. Ironically, I think what Toast really has here is a marketing problem. <laughs> um, they introduced this fee out of the blue, didn't really explain it very clearly, didn't give restaurants or consumers a choice on who's gonna pay it, how's this gonna work? They just said, hey, you all owe us an extra dollar now. Um, and consumers and restaurants took that exactly how you would expect. And then even Wednesday this week, when they walked it back, their apology comments, whatever you wanna call it, reads very sorry not sorry to me it's you know well we're trying to keep your costs low but i guess you don't see it that way so that's fine we'll stop trying and I mean, it's not you. us it's you uh, exactly it's like <laughs> i don't know i maybe i'm sensitive to it but it felt very like well we're trying to help you but if you don't want to help that's fine um and i think like i mean uh, the 
the fee was never going to be like a good thing in anyone's eyes except toast. But I think there are probably ways they could have introduced it or phrased it or um, other features they could have like implemented, like having the restaurants pay the fee if they want or whatever that could have helped it at least go over a little better so that they didn't have to walk it back, you know, a month later. Um, so interestingly, I do think this technology company has a marketing problem um, or a PR problem, but they kind of can go hand in hand. So I don't know. Yes, that's, that is right. It's a, it's a PR nightmare, I think. Um, and the response, the walk back did not, do them any favors. I mean, look, this is an industry where when McDonald's raises the price of a quarter pounder by a quarter, their fans freak out. You cannot slap any amount of money onto a value-oriented business, especially because let's face it, on the QSR fast casual side of things, 99 cents is not nothing. That is for 99 cents over $10 orders, that is as much as 10% of the check. That is a lot of money for a value-oriented business. And for much of this uh, country that participates in restaurants for the value of it, um, that's not nothing. And so um, there are any number of ways in which um, I could say that the decision to do that was not a good one. Um, but yeah, it should have always been an option. It should have always been something, or it, there should have been a higher threshold. If you put a 99 cent fee on a, an order of $50 or more, well, that's, I'm not going to bat an eye at that because then there's like a, oh, okay, well, I'm ordering for my whole family. I'm not going for the value or, you know, buy now and 99 cents. What's that to $50? You weren't going to um, do the math on that, Sam? I don't, I'm not a numbers guy. This is why I do words for a living. Uh, I just talk until somebody tells me to shut up. So yeah, I, it's, it was, it was ill-conceived and, and it's so fascinating that it was toast for me because toast like was, was cruising. Like now they weren't making a profit. That was the big problem, but brand wise. And if you want to go back to our last conversation on these brands and talking about branding and brand affinity and people, lifestyle brands, like toast was it. Like when it comes to POS, everybody I was talking to, especially in the emerging brand sector, it just felt like they, oh, it's toast. Toast is our go-to. They made it so easy for us. We love toast. And so to kind of spoil that brand affinity with that move was ill-conceived. Let's just say that. Um, and I'm not going to try to figure out why it happened the way it happened. But yeah, now to say, oh, well, we were trying to save you money, but I guess we'll take it back. <sighs> like, no, own it. Own it and just move on and hope that people figure it out. But here we are talking about it again because it's just – that has been, yeah, there, there's been a pretty severe messaging problem. And, um, and yeah, restaurant operators had every right to be mad about this because it was thrust upon them. And again, just to reiterate, their customers are not happy with any amounts of fees put on top of their bill. And so for it to be the restaurant here stuck in the middle, they had no choice, um, lose, lose across the board for the customer and for the restaurant. By the way, that's 85,000 restaurants. So the impact here is vast. Yeah. And, you know, to your point that toast was it, they were riding high. I saw several conversations uh, within my LinkedIn network asking, putting it out there, I need an alternative to toast. 
So I don't know if that have those manifested, but just the, the optics are, you know, were solidified. And I think, you know, I mean, there was a house committee on small business, you know, a congressperson that threatened to investigate this. It's how bad this was. So I think we just have to stop being so feed, you know, heavy in, in this industry. And, and I think, I wonder, I sometimes wonder, this is purely speculative, if Toast thought that this would be okay because we've kind of become numb to fees because we have them at every stop. We've got, you know, fees to cover, our, uh, you know, our servers' uh, health insurance. We've got, of course, delivery fees. I, I got a fee from a, a, a brand I will not name. Um, you know, that was a pretty hefty fee just for using online ordering. I picked it up. Why are they, why are they charging me a fee for that? I, because I maladjusted their labor structure. I don't know, but we are getting really numb to fees. There's obviously starting to be some pushback, but that's that I'm kind of wondering if Toast thought that this would just be another thing that, that we would be willing to absorb. And obviously, obviously that's very much not it. What strikes me about this is that Toast came out and said that they were going to use this money to fund software improvements. They were, they were charging their customers, um, you know, for their, for their very progress on their business strategy. Um, and I just, I just don't, if we have to charge fees, you know, to run our business and to progress in our business, that seems really wonky. To, to me, I mean, I think it a better way to do this maybe would have been to just look at the pricing structure, tier it with their restaurant customers, do something other than putting it on the backs of every order, $10 and above. And then, you know, my final point here is that profitability piece, Sam, that you mentioned, it, it, we cannot... We cannot charge fees to achieve profitability. We can't do it. And, you know, this is a long winded conversation that we've had about several companies, many of them tech companies that were just thrown all this money, this VC money thrown, um, you know, throughout the past three years to keep up with this vast acceleration from, from the pandemic. We are normalizing really quickly and profitability is going to become way more critical than it, than it has been. We needed the top line stuff to get through the past three years but I think investors especially are going to become very weary of, you know, that bottom line, not, you know, not being able to figure out the bottom line piece. And I can tell you, I, fees ain't it. <laughs> fees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, not to sound like uh, the get off my lawn grandpa over here, but uh, I, I, these tech companies, I mean, we've been through a decade of tech companies not turning a profit and, them kind of, you know, thumbing their nose at the consumer and charging crazy amounts of money to fund their, you know, whatever they're doing over there. And and I think, I, I don't know if I speak for all consumers, but I can say for myself, I am increasingly cynical of the tech sector and these tech bros who are getting massive payouts. And I read all these stories about these tech companies who have people on staff making six figures, not doing anything. And then you're going to give me a fee. And, and, and so what I think is really interesting, again, sort of the, to the timing of this is, A, yeah, we're all getting a bunch of fees to the point the government is investigating these trash fees that are get, you know charging all of us crazy amounts of money. Um, but also, B, 
I, I, the tech sector is losing a lot of goodwill because it's not just in food service. I mean, you look at Meta and DoorDash and you even go back to like WeWork and the failure of WeWork. I think consumers, there's going to be a pushback and it's coming soon of, okay, enough. You guys are having your little fun in Silicon Valley. A toast is based in Boston. But anyway, you know, you're having a little bit of fun. And by the way, I, I'm so sorry to everybody at Toast who's listening to this. I'm not directing this to you. I, 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 you guys still seem great. I'm more directing this, my own cynicism at the tech sector writ large, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're designing all these fancy tools and, and, you know, having all this fun, trying to tell us what the future is going to be, and you're making us pay for it. Like, I don't know. I, I'm in cynical. I'm cynical to that. And um, I think I like to say I'm a sort of a cross section of America because I live in the cross section of America in Columbus, Ohio. And I just suspect a lot of people feel that way too. And so there will be pushback. So if you are another tech company, oh, and last thing I was going to say, this is on top of a restaurant industry that has started to ask us to tip for counter service. And I love dearly the food service employees, the labor for workforce, they need to be paid more. But customers are now being asked to tip them to pay them more. And then we're getting these fees and then we're getting this, that, and the other thing. It's getting out of control. And a few weeks ago, I had this experience where I was coming home from band practice. Yes, coming home from my band practice. Uh, that'll be another podcast for another day to talk about that. Um, but it was late. Uh, I was hungry. And I, my family was uh, out of town and I'm like, it's 10 o'clock. Shoot. I'm going to get door, DoorDash and I'm going to stay up late and I'm going to eat some, some food that's not good for me. I ordered from a very well-known top 10 sports bar chain. I'll leave it at that and got it via DoorDash because I'm lazy. And I got 10 chicken wings and an order of fries. Anybody want to guess how much I paid for that? Once I added $45. Uh, well, it's a good guess. It was 32 $32 for 10 chicken wings and an order of fries to be delivered to me. And that was the last time I've used DoorDash. Sorry, DoorDash. I, 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 I'm just blown away. It just blows me away. And it wasn't only DoorDash's fault, right? The restaurant had its own fees and DoorDash had its fees. Um, clearly, this inspires some emotion and I'm close to it in my position here. But imagine how much people who are bootstrapped, who are counting their you know change to eat, and you want to charge them 99 cents on top? You know, I, sorry, I'm emotional. I'll stop. Well, and, who have, and who have kids at home who can't yes. easily get out of the house to eat. So delivery almost becomes, it's not just a convenience all the time. I think that's important to know. Right. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Sam, I got a, a random fee from an also unnamed brand because I went and picked it up. They charged me a fee for digital ordering. And it Which was is like- like six bucks. It was yeah, like, a hefty fee. I get that I'm yeah. paying a surcharge for my laziness, right? Okay, whatever. But yeah, to charge for picking it up. You're deterring <laughs> me. You're deterring me and you're going to you know, siphon people into third-party delivery and then you're going to lose more. Um, and there's no cost pie. to them. There's no cost to them, right? Like you're like, it, it's, it's kind of like those credit card transaction fees. And, you know, once upon a time it was way more popular to charge a fee if you used a credit card, right? Because there were those transaction fees. I, them, those might still exist to some degree, but it's this, to me, it's that same idea of like, there's no cost to this. There was no cost to you ordering digitally and picking it up yourself, but they make excuses to try to slip in these fees. And, and, Guys, I just re want to reiterate, if you're a tech company out there, no matter what company you are, or if you're a restaurant company, you know, the jig will be up eventually. And um, 
And to some degree, a lot of people dodged a bullet by not going into recession because a recession would have really thrust everybody into counting their pennies and noticing the fees a lot more. But we're still going to get there. I just I don't you can't do this kind of stuff. There is an unnamed chain here in New York City that I order from quite often, um, but I've stopped ordering online because they only you have to tip at least 12 percent online. There's no option to not tip 12 percent and to go pick it up, to, to walk pick it up and yourself. pick it up. To pick it up yourself, at least twelve percent. You can't. There's no option to do no tip, and so that's that's a junk fee. That's a fee that you're paying to pick up. So I go there in person and I order and wait in line, and instead of ordering ahead and getting my loyalty points, you're subsidizing their unwillingness to pay their employees more. We're gonna get a lot of emails from this. this so we welcome your emails. We'll yeah. write an article about hey, it. It's a conversation, right? Like you might disagree with us or me, especially, um, or maybe you agree, but like, this is all a conversation and, and I will 100% give toast the benefit of the doubt that they, they did not understand probably when they made that, that fee that this would be, would inspire such emotion in people. Okay. Like let's own it and move on and let's have a conversation about it. Cause I, I think toast will rebound from this. Okay. Cause as I understand, I mean, restaurants love their product. So yeah, let's make it a conversation and figure out what to do because we got to pay our employees better. We got to make a better experience through technology and we got to make money. We have to make turn a profit. Uh, so we got to figure out how all those things can happen in concert with each other without, you know, screwing the customer over. You named a lot of really hard things, Sam. That's not easy for a lot of people to do. Hey, this restaurant, I mean, restaurant industry is not for, uh, not for the faint of heart. For it's a certainly reason. not. Yeah. Well, Guys, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm going to throw it over to Brett's interview with Brian Sullivan, VP of Culinary for Red Robin Gourmet Burgers and Brews. And it's a great conversation. So I recommend listening to it. But thank you guys for joining me today. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Thank you. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheese making. Using only natural ingredients and fresh local Wisconsin milk, Master Cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh local Wisconsin milk, Master Cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. How you doing? Are we already uh, I'm doing great. It is good to see you, man. It's been a minute. <laughs> it has. Where were you the last time we spoke? Maybe at California Pizza Kitchen? Callum, you are correct. Yes, California Pizza Kitchen. And now you are at Red Robin, Red Robin Gourmet Burgers and Brews. How? That's correct. And when did you get there? I joined uh, January. Uh, I'm coming up on uh, about uh, seven months here now. So it's been uh, been quite the ride so far. A lot of fun. I bet. So what have you been up to? <laughs> well, um, really, the Better Burger platform has, has been my primary focus and uh, rolling out a bigger, better, juicier burger. Um, I kind of walked in to that kind of in the really at the beginning phases, but uh, we went from cooking our burgers 
on a belt driven char grill to flat tops. Oh, which is fantastic. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been quite a, quite a journey so far. We just actually rolled out the new better burger on June the 12th. So coming up on a month now. And so does that mean you had to install flat tops at all of the restaurants? We did. Uh, you can imagine just logistically <laughs> what a challenge that is for over 500 restaurants. So uh, we pulled the char grills out, installed flat tops in all of our locations, um, you know, painstaking process to vet out the operational technique needed, you know, behind the training. And uh, it, it's been fantastic. And I think one of the things that excites me just from uh, as I think about it in the restaurant bringing pride back into the restaurants for the cooks, right? Such a huge, important part. And and so how, why does a flat top bring pride in which, a, when a chargo doesn't? Well, well, for me personally, I, I feel like that's the best way to cook a burger, right? If you're going to cook a burger, I think it needs to be cooked on a flat top. Uh, you need to, we're using this, a patty that we're smashing. So we're searing that bottom texture. We're locking in the juices um, and we're, you know, we're caramelizing the beef as well. Um, and in that, I think it's for the cooks and for the managers as well. You know, they're not just taking a patty, placing it on a conveyor belt and waiting for it to come out on the other end, right? They're actually cooking. They're using their hands. There's more talent involved. Um, it's just more interactive. And, and I, I think that that brings back a lot of the pride factor for the cooks and the managers as well. Uh, that is a heck of a training process. Like how, how did you do that? Because if obviously, if you are accustomed to putting a patty on a on a conveyor belt and walking to the other side or whatever and pulling it off that's a completely different you might not have any idea how to actually cook a hamburger so what what kind of training was necessary uh, a lot of hands-on training a lot of video training um you know start really small you know take one restaurant um roll it out into one restaurant train all the managers uh, we brought some of the managers into the innovation kitchen here in denver trained them hands-on here then went into a restaurant trained them and the uh, and the cooks, um, you know, and then we kind of mushroomed it out from there. Added a few more flat tops in a in a in a couple more restaurants, and then we expand out to a market, put it in a market, test it, vet it out, and uh, it was received so well by the by our uh, employees, managers, and then our our guests as well. They definitely noticed a difference because it's a bigger, thicker, tastier burger. So it, even though you're smashing it, it's thicker. It is. Yes, yeah, thicker. Say it's the same amount of uh, the same weight of the patty, but it, it is a thicker burger. Just because, um, you know, you have the, the burgers that cook on a belt; they have to be manufactured a certain way, right? And so they're they're not as thick in general because they have to be um, slotted so that as they're going through the conveyor, the fat can can drip out and it can cook. Because you put a thick burger on a belt, it, it won't cook, or it'll take a lot longer to, for it to cook, right? So uh, there's definitely um, a difference in in flavor, texture, and the visual appearance as well. And we changed the bun too. We went to a traditional brioche bun, which is you know when you think about gourmet burgers to me, that that's probably the the fit for a, a, a perfect patty too, right? Is the right bun. And we were using a kind of a a cross cut top 
brioche or bun in the past. And so this brioche is lighter, you know, it condenses down. It's got the beautiful um, appearance on the exterior. So burgers just look fantastic. You guys have a fair number of franchisees too, right? Aren't you mostly franchised? Or we I do, mean? yeah. Uh, no, we're not. We're, uh, I think, about 160, 70 franchise partners. Okay. Yeah, 500. So we're, we're primarily um, still corporate owned. But a lot of franchisees and, and saying, hey, franchisee, please install an expensive new piece of equipment. Okay. Like, yeah. how was that conversation? Or did yeah. it happen before you arrived? No, you know what? No, it did. It happened when I when I was here, and it was uh, it's kind of the same thing. I they understood the vision of just elevating the guest experience and um, improving food quality. Um, I think over the years, you know, Red Robin had kind of lost its way just a little bit. So we were kind of getting focused back on 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 the core and the DNA of Red Robin. So conversations about it, and then kind of it was the same thing. But we would bring them into into Denver. We'd actually cook with them, cook for them, cook with them, take them through the process, let them see it, feel it, taste it. And, um, you know, once you go through that process, you compare them side by side. There is truly no comparison. So they they bought in immediately and uh, we're, we're all in from from the moment that, you know, we got through that experience. Uh, as you know, because you've been doing this for a while, just because something is better doesn't mean that customers who are accustomed to something being a certain way are going to like it even though it's better in theory it was like was there a lot of uh pushback from guests saying this is not the red robin burger i am accustomed to not at all actually it was it was, it was a complete opposite right from the beginning i think people notice the difference in quality they notice the difference in taste the visual appeal as well so yeah you know it's it's always a little bit unnerving um, to do something like that, it's it's a major uh, initiative, and we we just felt like it was the right thing to do, and for all of the reasons that, that I just spoke about, and uh, our guests feel the same way too. They notice it and they appreciate it, and it's really it's it's adding value back, you know, to or helping us add value to the brand. And and is the the beef itself different? I mean, it's shaped differently. Clearly, as you said, it's thicker and juicier. Is it? Is it a different mix of beef? Are there different suppliers? Did you have to do that? Yeah, so that was quite a process itself. So we spent, I probably spent, I would say, at least two months just looking at the right grind, the right formulation of, you know, of fat to, to beef. Um, and we ended up going with uh, 75-25, which cooked the best for us. And um, the, we changed the grind a little bit, a little bit uh, bigger grind, a little bit looser grind too. So it's not so condensed. And again, that patty was completely different, right? So this was kind of happening simultaneously. And um, yeah, we, you know, we've always used fresh, never frozen product, and we're continuing to do that. So um, that, that's really important to us as well. Um, and we do have uh, quite a few different partners that we work with across the country, our, our vendor partners. And so we had to kind of do that process with each one of them. And so it, it took some time and a lot of back and forth, uh, a lot of trips to their plants um, as well to actually, you know, to be on the line when product come off, came off the line, we'd cook on flat tops in their plant and then we'd bring it back here, emulate it here in the restaurants. 
And um, so it was it was a grueling process. Uh, I learned a lot. And I think that, that all of us did here actually in the kitchen as well. And um, yeah, we landed in a really good spot. Super proud of the work that we did. Is it is it seasoned differently at all or the same? Um, same seasoning blend, but actually that's a great point. Um, we realized that uh, we were under seasoning our, our burgers a bit and our guests were telling us that. So uh, we went in and we increased the seasoning on, on all of our burgers um, and we're doing it on our fries as well. So, uh, you know, as you know, seasoning is just such an important aspect of cooking. And um, yeah, we were kind of, we were falling a little bit short there. So we, we've corrected that as well. And how, how is it all prepared? Is it seasoned? Is it all the meat kind of seasoned beforehand or is it, is it preformed into patties? Is it formed into patties in the restaurants? How does that work? Yeah, it comes in, it's, it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's fresh, comes in, in, um, in a puck shape, kind of, uh, an expanded puck, not like a true ball, a little bit more expanded. So it gives us a little bit more consistency when we're pressing it to order because we're not using a mold, we're doing a free form press. So we have to train how, um, you know, how, how much pressure to put down for how long. Um, we tried the mold, but the molds were kind of, interestingly enough, they were inconsistent for us. So we found that we had better consistency using a, a puck that had been um, just pressed out a little bit. And then we season each burger patty to order. So it's all, it's all hand done. So it sounds like you get more consistency if you empower the cooks to kind of, you know, cook the burger rather than having it in a mold, which... I like, as as everybody's talking about AI and computers taking over the world, which um, is ridiculous, or maybe I'm wrong and maybe they already have, but- um, <laughs> Yeah, we don't know that, do we? <laughs> no, it's, it's nice to know that, you know, the human element is super important, which is nice. It, it is, and again, it's just that pride, it's that pride factor, you know, our, our cooks want to cook. You know, we, we can simplify it to a point, but at some point, um, you know, it, it's nice to bring that process back into the restaurant and give people the experience of cooking and working with their hands and, and making judgment calls on things, you know, obviously following recipes, but look, there's, you can't say it's exactly two minutes or it's exactly three minutes on a burger press. You've got to look at it, right? You got to use your eyes. You have to use your senses. You have to be engaged. And, and I think that that's what people feel coming off of a shift, you know, like they, they accomplished something, they did something. It's not just like, Oh, I put lettuce at, you know, it just, it's not such an easy assembly piece now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's really exciting for us and to see it and to feel it in the restaurants. Well, and to do that at more than 500 restaurants is, is pretty incredible. So nice job. The, the rollout's complete now. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, that that part of it, I mean, we're still working on improving ingredients. Um, you know, when I when I started, we really went through every single ingredient that we were using in the restaurant and we did sensory on everything that we that we're currently using. And we're like, look, how, how can we bring value back to our guests? What can we do in house? that we are, you know, currently purchasing RTU or, or processed in terms of, you know, produce or something like that. And um, so that process has been really exciting, especially for the, the people that have been at Red Robin, you know, for 20, 15, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. The legacy or the, uh, the tenure here is pretty deep, which is fantastic. 
management level, office level. And so if you look back at the history of Red Robin, you know, this is a, a legacy brand, of course, 50 years and plus. And in the beginning and over time, everything was scratch cooking. Everything in this restaurant was made from scratch, right? And a lot of restaurants were like that. Even in my past, it was the same thing. But as as we've evolved, um, and as um, I think products as 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 evolved as well, um, it gives us the opportunity to really explore. Look, what what can we do to improve ingredients? And that for me, that's everything from pickles to mayonnaise to olive oil to garlic, anything that we're using, what can we do to either do it in-house, do it better, or to purchase a higher quality product? So we're in the process of doing that right now. So you're doing a whole uh, evaluation of every ingredient. Every ingredient. We're upgrading every every single ingredient, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would say every, I mean, that's, that's probably taking a little too far, obviously, but about 80% of the ingredients will be enhanced or improved on some level. But Brian, haven't you heard that there's a labor shortage and <laughs> that doing things in-house is increasingly difficult? Or maybe maybe Red Robin is at full employment and there's no problem, I don't know. Like how, how do you balance operational complexities with improving your product? That's a great, great point. And, and it is still a challenge, right? I mean, labor, uh, the labor market's still really tight. Um, we we seem to do a little bit better in the back of the house, which is good news for, for me in my world. Front of the house is a little bit more challenging. Um, but uh, yeah, the back of the house, we're pretty good. I think it's just, it really gets back to training, right? Explaining the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and then letting them taste the difference of, you know, product A versus product B. And an example of that uh, for you would be pineapples. Right now we're using a canned pineapple product. Um, We're going to transition to fresh pineapple towards the end of the year. Okay, so there's a labor component to that, right? I have to get pineapples in, I have to trim them, then you have to core them, then we have to slice them. Cooking them on the on the flat top is the same as, as what we were doing in the past. So there's no change there. But when you take the amount of time, um, which is really n- maybe minutes more compared to taking a can of pineapples and draining it and then panning it and then cutting it and slicing it, it's a two or three more minutes to do a fresh pineapple. And then you taste the difference with your managers and your cooks and they're like, wow, okay. And that you've sold it right there. And the same thing with our friend franchise partners and the guests, you just notice, you know, there's really no difference between a canned pineapple and a fresh pineapple, right? Although a canned pineapple is not as good, but possibly more consistent. I, I mean, I guess that's your job to procure good pineapples, which is right. probably easier said than done. Yeah, actually, pineapples are one of the few things that are actually, they're relatively consistent. Um, yeah, it, I, I've had that experience too in my past, and so, which is kind of surprising, but um, pineapples aren't one of those items that uh, that we struggle with too much. Avocados, it's a little bit different animal. <laughs> and we use a lot of avocados as well. I bet you do. So what, what were you doing before you were at Red Robin? Be, oh, at, at California Pizza Kitchen? But was that was it an immediate switch from CPK to Red Robin? It, I don't know. I think there was a gap. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? There was a gap. 
I, I tell you what I was doing, Brett. I was just trying to, um, it was during the holidays. So I was transitioning. I was moving from uh, LA to, uh, to Denver. And uh, so that was part of it. And then also transitioning um, just during the holidays. So uh, I had a couple of, of weeks off there. I, I probably should have taken a little more time, to be honest. <laughs> but I had to get back to work, man. <laughs> Weren't you? So you're one of those kinds of chefs who needs to be busy all the time. Yeah, my wife was not very fond of my decision, to be honest with you. She's like, hey, you need to take take a month or two off, you know, just to, to reset. And um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, it's not my DNA, man. So you were at CPK for what a thousand years? How long? Yeah, you pretty. Been? Yeah, right under like nine hundred ninety nine, right under a thousand. <laughs> it was thirty four years actually. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, so you had never had to reformulate a hamburger before. Well, interestingly enough, prior to leaving CPK um, in October of last year, I launched the West Coast Burger at CPK. Oh. Yeah, so I was a Wagyu Chuck brisket burger, brioche bun, um, and we had installed, uh, not flat tops, but we had installed um, like uh, kind of lodge skillets that went on top of our existing grills over there. So we were we were cooking them on a flat top, doing the buns on a flat top. So yeah, so that was uh, kind of kind of interesting timing there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was sort of uh, preparing you to yeah, right. Red Robin. That's interesting. So what you mentioned Wagyu, what what the hell is up with Wagyu being everywhere? Like it's Arby's has a burger, it has a Wagyu blend, CPK, as you mentioned. Every every place seems to be folding Wagyu into stuff. What's what's up with that? Is that marketing or something else? Or both? I, I don't think it's marketing for me. I, I believe that there's like when I go to the store to buy steaks. I buy Wagyu because I feel like it's just, it has a kind of a buttery and almost like a nutty buttery flavor and the fat and the flavor of the fat and the beef itself, I just think is, it's, it's my favorite. I just think it's outstanding. Um, I mean, texturally, I don't really think there's that much a difference, but I, I think just from a flavor standpoint, there, there is a noticeable difference and I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I suppose it depends on the kind of Wagyu because there's, you know, super premium Japanese A5 Wagyu and then there's American and Australian Wagyu and then there are American Wagyu Angus hybrids and stuff. And sometimes it's hard to know what you're getting on a menu because it just says Wagyu. Right. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, like the Japanese stuff, that's a whole different animal right there, right? <laughs> Literally and uh, and uh, figuratively speaking. But I... Uh, I've been using the the American version, and that's uh, that the grass fed or the stuff from Australia. The Australian product is grass fed, which I, I it's a little bit gamey for me. I, I'm not a grass fed uh, beef man. I, I like the American style. I just like the taste of it better. Um, so yeah, that's why I landed on the American style wagyu. Yeah, I was just talking to a fancy. Uh fine dining chef who said exactly the same thing about grass-fed beef, grass-finished beef, because obviously all beef is fed grass. It's, that depends on right. how it um, That he likes the idea of grass-finished beef, but in terms of flavor, there is something magical about finishing cattle on grain. You, I, you, I agree. 
Are, are you going to be introducing uh, any Wagyu to Red Robin? It is. It, burgers are its signature thing. I'll tell you what, it's on my list. Oh, cool. <laughs> as soon as we get through these enhancements, uh, you know, through the end of this year, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be exploring that for 24 for sure. That That's exciting. Um, do you, has there been some low hanging fruit that you have already changed? Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, I mentioned the, the buns. I think that that was one for sure. And then really it's just mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is, is a big part of what we do here, right? You look at for mayonnaise, it's in probably 70% of our sausages. It's on 65% of our burgers. Uh, the mayonnaise that we are currently using, I believe can be improved upon. Um, so um, mayonnaise pickles, tomatoes, the tomatoes, we're, we're going to be going to uh, vine ripened tomatoes in October as well. So, you know, a new pickle, a new bun, a new patty, the way it's cooked. Um, in addition to, you know, pineapple, um, we're going to fresh avocado in the restaurants on the burgers. Currently, we're using HPP product. So doing fresh smashed avocado in-house on the burgers. So those are some of the things that, again, there's a small labor component attached to them, but the difference in the flavor and the quality and the value that it brings to our guests is outstanding. And, you know, gourmet burgers, it, it's on our doors, right? It's on our buildings. So to have a gourmet burger, we need gourmet ingredients and we need to, to serve the, the best ingredients that we can for the value and the price that we're asking. Oh, it's interesting that you you point out that by having more stuff being done in house, you you have more kind of uh, pride and and ownership from the cooks. Uh, has I mean, it's only been seven months, and these implementations are relatively new. But do you think that's going to affect turnover at all? Um, the early indication is no. You know, some of these restaurants have been have been live for a few months now. And so that that hasn't been the case. I think actually it's it's having the opposite effect. I think it's creating excitement within the restaurants for our management teams and our staff. They see all these changes coming. They taste it. They see how we're improving the food and how we're enhancing the guest experience. And they're excited, you know, and they're bought in. So I think it's actually it's a selling point for our managers and, and it's bringing that um that excitement back into the restaurants or just building on excitement that was there. That, oh, one thing I forgot to mention um, oh. that I'm excited about. Sorry. Uh, we also in June, we um, transitioned to hand breaded chicken sandwiches cooked mm -hmm. to order. So that's another, so you think about all of the components right now we have to take chicken and we have to um, put it in the batter and we have to dredge it. And, and so there's a process there but it, it's the same thing. Now we have this amazing hand-breaded fried chicken sandwich that's just, you know, probably close to 50% thicker than the sandwich we have right now. And it's just incredibly flavorful and the texture is a lot better. So that was another one. It's like, oh my gosh, now the, you know, we're asking them to do flat top cooking and now we're going to have them do this uh, hand-breaded battered chicken sandwich um, how's that going to play? And then as soon as they do it a few times that, you know, we put it in a little bit of a test, they taste the product. They see the difference. The pride factor again, shoots up and they're like, okay, we get it. We know why we're doing this and, and we're in. That's, that's great.
And what what's the cooking staff like at at a Red Robin? Is it like a kitchen manager and a couple of cooks, or how how does it work? Well, that that's another great point because um, as I mentioned, we kind of lost our way in the past, and and one of the things that happened a few years ago is uh, the brand eliminated kitchen managers from oh. the restaurant, which is not a great thing to do. Um, so we are in the process of reestablishing kitchen managers in each one of our locations. Um, hopefully by the end of the year, we will have de uh, designated kitchen managers in all of our locations. And again, there it's, it's, it's saying that, hey, you know what? Kitchens are important to us. Our food is important to us. And um, that sends a very strong message to our managers and to our staff. Um, so that's been a really um, welcome uh, addition to the restaurants. And, and it also helps with the staff, right? Because now you have a leader back there. And so you have somebody that's that's leading the kitchen back there and that, that employees can go to and somebody that's on the line working with them, you know, sweating with them back there and helping them. And that that's a really strong message to send. Yeah, and I imagine the GMs generally do not have kitchen experience or not a lot of it. So it's good to have somebody doing that. And, and yeah, I mean, when you... In my experience, which is reporting on restaurants not working in them, when you cut costs by reducing staff and stuff, it never goes well. Like, you know, you <laughs> if you improve the quality, then that can bode really well for a restaurant. I've never seen a restaurant concept turn itself around by cutting corners. It doesn't work. It just it just accelerates the the descent into oblivion. You're absolutely right. It's like a kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, you start cutting staff, you take the host out, you eliminate bussers, you pull the kitchen manager out, then you start cutting on ingredients, start getting cheaper ingredients or or the portions on ingredients. And to me, it's basically, it's a death march, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're not going to survive long-term. And um, especially in this environment, in, the, in the, the restaurant environment is, as you know, has just been increasingly difficult um, to maneuver over the past, you know, especially since COVID, but even before that, it was, it was tough. So um, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, in interesting that what, what we've heard from consumers is they understand that the cost of everything is going up and they will pay more if they get good quality. And if they don't get good quality at the prices they're paying, they're going to be angry and they're going to let you know. So Good job on uh, fixing all this stuff. Uh, is, is Have your costs gone up with new beef and, and things like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every, everything I'm touching has a has a price tag, Brett. But look, we're, we're mitigating that. There were some opportunities with, you know, when we look at uh, the way things even are packaged and, and boxes that they come in, the size of boxes and and how we're, how we're managing um, just that part of it. Um, and so there were, and there were some opportunities where we, you know, we chose a product that was, um, that was a higher quality, but we were able to negotiate a better price. So we're, you know, we, we offset that, but, but in general, look, I mean, higher quality ingredients, you're going to pay a higher, higher price in general. So, um, and that's why I'm, I'm grateful to be working for GJ Hart, our CEO, who has the vision and he understands the restaurant business and, and he, um, you know, he's guiding the way on that and, and giving us the uh, the ability um, to make these changes. And so that's really, 
you know, that's, that's really exciting for, for me and for everybody on the team over here. Great. Well, it sounds like you've kind of landed on your feet at Red Robin, uh, which is great to see. Uh, was Thanks for taking the time to hang out with me for a while. It was great catching up. And, and, and while you were talking, I was looking on Google Maps where the closest Red Robin is so I can go eat some of your food. Not too far. There's one. I'm in Brooklyn. There's one in Secaucus, New Jersey. I could get there. How far Secaucus? I mean, I'd have to take a train to Port Authority, and then there's a bus directly there. I know that actually because there's a Walmart in Secaucus, and the bus goes directly to Walmart, and Red Robin is like across the street from there. So, well, you let me know when you want to go, and I'll make sure that we we set you up over there. I I will do that. Thank you. Absolutely. And thanks again for taking the time and I uh, hope we get to do it again soon. I would love that, Brez. Great to see you, man. You look great. <laughs>